0: This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne bro. look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven Robbery, homicides, take it. Give me all you got! This and- Give me all you got! I do what I do best takes course. you do what you do best I'm trying to stop guys like you
1: a podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of michael mann's ladies and, and gentlemen welcome to one Heat. minute i'm your host blake howard one joining me today at a time uh, is someone who has dedicated themselves to michael mann much in the same way that i have but a different film oh my god yes there's more than one michael mann movie if you've been listening to one Heat minute and i know we do uh, across the borders here, but I'm really, really thrilled um, to talk to this man who's on the on the line right now from the States. His name's Niall Schwartz, and if you, if you haven't seen, he's written kind of a really amazing um, sort of critical theory, if you like, sort of semi-academic um, uh, film analysis of Michael Mann's Public Enemies. It does sort of branch a little bit into Black Hat and it's it does a really incredibly difficult thing for someone who's written a thesis on Michael Mann myself it does a really incredibly difficult thing to be dense um, and to have a really layered and rich argument about formal textures and um you know uh, trends in the film industry and how things are moving along all intertwined like intrinsically with things that are happening in the film and he did yeah, I've just said to him off air, but I'm happy to say it again, he did it way better than I did. Um, So it's absolutely worth your time and your money um, to get off the map, freedom control and the future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies. All man fanatics need to continue to collect great writings on Man, and I have done that and I have read his book and I'm going to read it again after I watch Public Enemies again because it is a terrific one. Niall Schwartz, welcome to One heat Minute.
2: Oh, thank you, Blake. Bless you for saying that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you. And what's what's good, Niles, was very nice to say, I've unfortunately had a couple of delays to get him on the show and he's listened to a few episodes and he likes it, so we are on our way. So thank you. Um, yeah, I, I felt about getting a little Albert Torina on you, but I like the show so much <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's fine. Give me all you got, Blake. Give me all you <laughs> I was going to start hating you, but uh, no, it's fine. So right now, we're queued up to the 74th minute Of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. Uh, It's kind of really examining the receding hairline of the incredible Ted Levine. Um, If you've got the freeze frame there, um, we're on the Blu-ray theatrical cut, not on the gorgeous 4k re-release. I think it's called the definitive edition um, across, uh, you know, whether you're in the UK, London, Australia, I think you can find it around as the definitive cut. But here we are right now. We've just had the incredible moment where um, uh, I think Joe Lynch refers to him as Captain Hydration. I've heard rumours that it was indeed um, uh, uh, Chuck. Oh my god, Chuck Chuck Chuck, Adamson. Chuck Adamson um, was actually playing himself there, but I don't think it is now. I'm doing more research, trying to find pictures. I'm trying to find pictures of Chuck Adamson to to verify, but Google.
2: Uh, Thie- uh, in Thief, he plays the uh, pol- uh, like the police captain, the boss, yes. who's John Santucci's boss. It's funny because Adamson spent years chasing John Santucci, and there <laughs> they are side by side beating up uh, James Khan
1: There you go. Adamson
2: I- is the one who calls Khan a stiff prick in the scene. <laughs>
1: I'm going to see if I can find that audio and put it right now so you guys can have a listen to it. Um, <laughs> we've just seen this officer, Captain Hydration, as uh, Joe Lynch calls him, take a seat and clue Neil into the fact that he's being watched. And there's just such subtleties that move into this scene. So we're going to watch it. We're going to come back together. And then Niles, as you can clearly hear already, is a man aficionado. So we're going to dive into this. We could go along. It's going to be fun. Let's go.
0: Heads up. What's coming out? Just hold it, Captain. Vincent, he's not carrying anything. Yeah, I see. Here we go. Not till my boss says so. Vincent, both of them are not carrying anything. Okay, let him go. What do you mean? We can take him on. On what? On what? What are you going to take him on? Breaking an entry? They didn't steal anything yet. Don't you get it? It gets knocked back to some chicken shit misdemeanor. They do six months and they're out. No fucking way. I'm not taking the heat from my bosses because you let them go. They're not walking. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to walk. This is my operation. I have tactical command that supersedes your rank. They will walk away.
1: And you will let them.
0: Fuck! (laughs) Uh, I mean,
2: heck. (laughs) If only we could have had one more second, but
1: Okay. This is the game. This is the discipline. Um, <laughs> uh, but we've completely, just like all the rules in this movie, we break them. You know, just like, the, you know, <laughs> I'm, nev- I'm never, I'm never, I'm going to turn away. The heat's around the corner. I'm going to leave it. Nah, the juice is worth the squeeze on this one. I'm going to go for it. So, yeah, look, what an incredibly tense minute. And uh, I just, uh, the things I start to notice, particularly in this one, is, what terrific eye acting the actors are doing to have their mouth covered like how much of their how much of their weapon of choice, so to speak their face and all the gestures that they do here like there's twenty seconds where Pacino's mouth is completely obstructed, so you're just watching this intensity roll through his eyes similarly with Michael T Williamson, you know they're doing this, and they just it's kind of effortless it don't, they don't it, it feels like another director would say get get the you know, get that walkie-talkie just another inch away from your face so we can see your mouth, you can be more emotive, be more expressive. And just even the a little walkie, touch like that.
2: The walkie-talkie being where it is is, I think, absolutely man's choice and a deliberate move in terms of encapsulating what that scene is all about. Um, because
1: the, the the whole
2: sequence, uh, I don't know if you've gone into this, I think you... you the music at the beginning, not yeah. in this minute.
1: Yes, at the beginning.
2: Yep. It's it, it's not Elliot Golden Paul, It's Ligeti. It's the Cello Concerto by Ligeti. Uh, Ligeti is best known to cinephiles as being someone who contributed music to 2001 A Space Audit, or didn't contribute, but Kubrick used music from 2001 A Space Audit uh, for 2001, The Shining, and... Eyes wide shut, and Scorsese actually used the cue that was used in *The Shining* at the beginning of *Shutter Island*. But uh, very in that
1: that gorgeous boat scene.
2: Yeah, no, no, not that scene. But when the Paramount logo comes up,
1: ah, right, right, he does that as a flurry in that scene. Okay, cool.
2: But the thing of intertextually, this is the way I read it. it. Kubrick is one of man's three. Guys, one of his three heroes. The others are Dziga and Sergei Eisenstein. Sound, yep. All three of them connect through this 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 idea of man meddling, fusing, colliding with his machines, and the instrumentation of the Ligeti in that in that sequence. It's the the sound of the instrument of itself sort of divorced from becoming a melody. It's on the precipice of becoming a melody, but it's not there yet. It's nice. almost breaking through. In the same way the tool in the whole sequence is about tools. It's all about the monitor that Sizemore is is looking at, the breaking in the door and then the drill, the sound of the drill melding perfectly together with the cello yes. of the lig- ligament. So there's this equivalency between the music and the what the magic act so to speak is and, to and borrow James Bond.
1: and okay. you're right it's too everything's tuning up it's not quite yeah. there it's like the the that ligety flurry or whatever that flurry is um at the beginning uh, that that music has it swelling it sounds like a tune-up in an orchestra it's not like yeah. it's mo- it's more like they're tuning up w- looking at their so, at their song sheets but but it's not yeah. it hasn't reached a someone's conducting them to do something. And that's exactly what this whole scene is. It's that tune-up, that anticipation and rolling it in.
2: And then what, what happens is that these two machine men, uh, yes. they follow a different kind of protocol. They're not, they're, they're not controlled by their tools, so to speak. They have another kind of machinery going on in their head. Uh, they're, you know, man, whenever he's talking about his characters, is, it's as if they're complex computer programs in a way. <laughs> yeah. The way life programs you. The uh, a screwdriver is one kind of tool that you exert power over. At the same time, the apparatus, the prison, for example, that James Con takes and talks about in Thief, those green walls, you know, to which you say, "My life is yours." That's another kind of instrument that makes you its tool. Uh, but what happens is that. Uh, De Niro tells Kilmer, "Walk." He knows what's happening. Yeah, and uh, Kilmer's almost there. He's right there. Yeah, yes, and, I'm right. I'm, I'm right here. And on, you know, I, I'm and Kilmer wants that money because you know the the, uh, the harmony that would come through with that music breaking through is uh, paying off the bookies and having a happy life with uh, Charlene. On the other side uh, is that. Police sergeant who wants to take on the the, the crew because you know my, I don't want to take the heat from my boss.
1: It's the first I mean, so time yeah. that the heat yeah. is used in an opposite context as well in this, yeah. in this very minute because it, we've always thought of it as the cops on the crooks. But here it's like no, I don't, I don't want to take the heat. I don't want to be under the pressure. And it's the it's very similar. You've got Michael T there going wait. He's like he's like Neil. Wait, stop, stop.
2: Not, not till my <laughs> boss says so.
1: <laughs> not till my boss says okay. so.
2: There's, you know, they, they're microorganisms in the macro organism controlled by by Hannah. Hannah himself wants to take them on, I think. But what you have in front of his mouth, it, that's his own kind of uh, discipline and machinery, you know, saying that, no, he understands recidivism.
1: Yes. I think. <laughs> Yeah.
2: The key on, on Hannah that I, I talk that I argue about is that is those eyes looking at him in his dreams yes you know he he's so impelled to stop whatever's happening that he neglects what's happening at home there's no you know in other words his mouth his communicative device is you know sort of aligned with that apparatus whereas at home he can't talk as Justine tells him you follow the regular routine we fuck and you lose the power of speech that frame of the walkie-talkie in front of Pacino's face there is echoed in that painting that we see behind hannah at home it's actually i think a painting by one of man's daughters where you see someone's mouth covered up by darkness yes and their eyes are closed i think that's a deliberate maneuver on man's part and this is what that whole scene is about and when he said when he gives the, the police sergeant the the ninth degree and he's like reading off a, you know the, the dictates a protocol. You know, I'm a state worker, so sometimes I have to do this myself, you know, (laughs) uh, stuff for the Department of Health. Uh, You know, then he could drop the, he drops the uh, walkie-talkie and says what his all-too-human instincts tell him to do, or tell him to feel, fuck, you know. (laughs) The the all-too-human barges in on the scene, whether it's Chris wanting to uh, get that money or get the, whatever's in the, the metal factory, or... Water dude. Hydrogen dude?
1: Uh, we, I think we called him Captain Hydration was his... Uh... Captain <laughs> Hydration,
2: yeah. Uh, and, you know, needing water. I mean, all too human. So this whole scene, I think, is it, sort of, an you know, with, is, with the lig- Ligeti surrounding everything, that, which I think is an intertextual nod to Stanley Kubrick, and it's also just perfect for the scene. I mean, the, the incidental way that it works when the noise is made and then, you know neil reacts vincent reacts and you have that interface with the machine neil you know through that yes that, that camera that you know infrared kind of thing
1: it's infrared but uh, it's michael uh, mann blue, i think because it couldn't infra-blue. possibly it couldn't possibly be infrared it has to be blue, i think one of the things that i love man doing is toying with the contradiction of Vic, vincent and, and sort of Sort of really starkly contrasting Vincent's home life and work life as you're talking about, because there's such a great scene. Is and I hadn't hadn't really put it together until I continued examining examining this podcast. Is like, but even after I got past that minute, I still think about it. Is when he's talking to Rachel, his crime scene investigator, that's his work wife. They yeah. have conversations about... Get, and, your, get your hand out of the man's pocket, Rachel. Yeah, they, yeah. Share, they share rapport. They do their thing. And particularly around the emo, like having to deal with the emotion of a particular thing. So just before Justine gives him the third degree about doing all the things that he, she feels that he can't do, he's done them all with Rachel. He's sat there and he's appraised the scene and he's been objective and he's acknowledged emotion coming into the scene. And then had to surrender to the fact that he has to deal with that emotion. He has to be that person for this victim's parent right then and there. And so then you go to the Justine scene and she's like, you can't do any of this. Or at least I don't see you doing any of this. And so what's great here is that it's those it's those things that are so perfect in their, each of these guys' professional lives. And so starkly absent in anything in their personal lives that just continues to be reinforced. And it's not in the overt scenes that really st- that makes it so striking for me. It's um, it's it's in these little small moments that are sort of continuing the thesis subliminally, if you like, as you're going along. So you're not thinking about it. And uh, to, to your point, the Kubrick and Ligarty... Um, Kubrick famously, obviously everything is a phallus, everything's about sex. He would really love Val Kilmer drilling that vault. Like, wouldn't he? Wouldn't <laughs> Kubrick love that? He would and maybe man in his quiet moments, we could maybe ask him if he ever does come on the show. Come on, Michael, tell us. If you if as Niles is uncovered for us, which is a fantastic discovery and part of the reason why I gotta get people like you on here, Niles, you're great. Um, but that amazing moment like drilling, I think he would have liked that too.
2: Yeah, I, I think that uh, – well, I think it was Richard Combs in the film comment uh, article on Man from March 1996, you know, after he had come out, was the one who pointed out the Leibody music and how – I'm going
1: gonna, I'm gonna to grab – It was
2: a cosmic crime film. I think it had La Haine on the cover of that film comment, but
1: – I'm going to uh, find it another phenomenal – another phenomenal writer that I would love to get onto this show.
2: Yeah, the article is called Michael Mann Becoming, I believe. Um, but, you know, to your point of that, you know, the home life and being, you know, performing in front of one set of machinery versus having nothing by the time you come home, I, I really loved what you and Manola Dargas were talking about in terms of that scene being like a movie premiere, the scene uh, yes. with the, the grieving mother and, and how Vincent is in a lot of ways an actor, because I think that's, even though uh man doesn't seem to be that kind of, uh, I would quote unquote postmodernist type of filmmaker. Yes. Performance is everything I think for him. I mean, in, in public enemies, certainly, which I dealt with, but in heat, uh, uh and hopefully you'll bring this up later during the famous TV scene or when the TV smashing scene, but TVs figure into this a lot, entertainment figures into this a lot. Wayne Grow is a character, I think, for example, who's walked off of a kind of 80s, 90s pulpy (laughs) type of movie, and he ended up in heat, you know, full of real uh, stone-cold professionals that you wouldn't see in those kinds of films. He's, you know... More of a, I, I think he's a great character, but he's kind of this hackneyed uh, machismo persona, which is not at all in the, the league of uh, Neil McCauley or Jaredo no. or any number of other Michael Mann heavies.
1: And what's, uh, I think, I think this is where the humor feeds in. It's like, for all of the formative foes that Neil may have overcome, and Vincent being the one that we're there. This absolute screw, like he's he's screwball, I want to call him without the without the comedy connotations, but say screwball of a guy, is the guy who's that continuing tick who just seems to, by pure luck or osmosis or just flukes, it, it becomes like one of his greatest foes. I think that that's like the lesson that transitioned from L.A. One of the lessons that Man took, you know, transitioning from L.A. takedown to Heat is going. Mm. No, I need to this guy's definitely deranged and he's definitely a psychopath. But but there's so many um, coincidences that allow him to continue to be on top of Neil. And Neil's focus to be elsewhere, and that to continue so you're you're constantly watching Neil shift his focus to what's the most important things, you know, protecting his team, keeping his team's family together, getting the next score online, and it's only by the grace of that that focus, that laser focus being away from Wango, that he continues to be able to be a niggle before Neil's like, nope, I've now got an opportunity to, to get him. So, But I, I totally agree with you. I, I think it's almost like that. It's it's man laughing. It's like this guy, who would have thought that this guy would have posed his greatest threat because he just, yeah. he didn't he, he didn't pay him any attention. And of course, the thing that you don't pay any attention to is the thing that ends up sort of unraveling you.
2: Yeah, I, I, I tend not to think about Plausibility or the plausibles, so to speak. You know, yeah. Heat has a lot of things that kind of strain plausibility. I don't care about that. But the I thing agree. that is
1: if it's if uh, it's good. Why I,
2: did Neil it, hire Wayne Grow? Who who's the one who? <laughs> uh,
1: I, I never bother with that too, Niles. I love that you say that because some people are like, uh, uh, so, uh, people usually reference it to something like, say, like the Dark Knight. They're like, oh, the Joker's planned so implausible. I'm like, shut up. It's enter- It's yeah. a pure, chaotic, fun. It's, 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 you don't have to go everything to the sort of granular in the plausibility. It's about whether it's entertaining and emotionally true for whatever the purpose of that text is. Um, but yeah. Man's films, uh,
2: they, they have this paradox of the realistic and the, you know, the scrupulously researched. And at the same time, they're abstract and, you know, everyone's in their Sunday best. Everyone, you know, everyone lives in the ocean and, uh, there's this, uh, recurrence of aesthetic arrest through it all. But at the same time, it's, it's not empty stylization. It's, uh, just, uh, just these peak aesthetic experiences that for your eyes, uh, for your, you know, just the, he's marveled by what he sees. I think Michael Mann, he's
1: all about optics. I want to talk about, you said you're talking about intertextuality just purely in, um, in, 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 the utilisation of music. But one thing I want to talk about is sort of the intertextuality of just a performer because you talked about acting yeah. being so important. And I think that's one thing I really thoroughly enjoyed about reading your book off the map was you, you kind of, you start to talk about Johnny Depp in those terms a little bit. And I think that, yeah. um, I think if we could talk about that because of folks who haven't read it yet, I, I really strongly recommend you to read it. But I just, that's one thing that I really drew on and continue to draw on with heat and we do it in a fun way my friends and i which you know fan cast heat in different eras you know what would heat look what would heat look like in 1975 and there's going to be an upcoming episode and niles if you're around i might i might get in touch again see if we can do it at a time we can link up because it would be a great deal of fun but like what would heat look like in 75 85 you know um, you know recast at 95 etc and i always come back to one really critical point i said you need if you're building heat you have to begin with Pacino and De Niro and you have to look at two people, two actors who've had a career trajectory, whether they've acted together once before in some famous film and and what it would mean for them to be back together. Like I said, so if you don't have that rule, it doesn't work. And the reason that I always talk about that is because these guys bring so much baggage, such great baggage from a litany of amazing performances before, before they walk into heat and they are right there and... They never, and there's no postmodernist wink, like, hey, this is Serpico talking to Taxi Driver. Like, there's none of that. It's just that you know it, and it's like echoing through everything they do. Um, And I just love that about, uh, especially the aspect of fame for Dillinger and and Depp. The whole time I, and what really... Clark Gable. Clark Gable. It just, and all of those things layering in, it just sings to me because I'm like, oh God, it's, Dillinger was doing the, Dillinger's got his own, uh, intertextuality at the same time as then Depp bringing in all of his baggage. I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that a little bit.
2: Def- definitely. And the thing is, is that Clark Gable in 1933, 34, that's a very different kind of acting style Yes, that Pacino and De Niro came from. And I think man is conscious about, I mean, it's, it's the way that Depp talks, the way his the silly lo- come online to Billy forchette Marion Cotillard, you know, I'm, glad you gave that guy the go by, you know, it's movie, it's, it's hackneyed 1930s movie dialogue. It's not sophisticated, but that's how John Dillinger learned to talk. He was in prison for nine years in the twenties. He comes out, the talkies are there and that's how he learns to orient with people. And that's how he, you know, in Christian Bale's Melvin Purvis is the same thing in real life. According to Brian Burroughs book, public enemies, J Edgar Hoover selected Um, Melvin Purvis because he had a Clark Gable look to him yes now and that's you know the classic Hollywood classic movie star thing you know that who we aspired to be and there's a great book that came out by Dan Callahan uh, about uh, the art of American screen acting 1913 to 1960 which is all about that and it goes through all these Mm -hmm. classic movie stars up to Brando really and how when we talk about heat and the melding of Pacino and De Niro and how significant that was in 1995, it could only be that time. It could only be those two because those are two the two principal guys or two of the principal guys. There's a, a ton of them who came from that school that you know the more naturalistic acting school. Stella Adler and Strasburg, Brando as being the, the grand, you know, the center of that. Yes. And, you know, in, through the late 60s and 70s, and people like Hoffman, Hackman, and and so on and so forth. But it's a different kind of acting style. It's not who we wish to be. It's more who we are. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of scratching and...
1: <laughs> yes.
2: And, you know, I, I like what Roman Polanski said about John Cassavetes. You know, he said, up uh, working on Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Polanski had a more, ref, you know, manneristic method of handling actors. And he says, I assure you, he scratches himself way too much. They didn't get a lot. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> but, but you know, Pacino and De Niro, the negative thing about all this that Callahan gets into is that uh, this is why roles, the movie star status of women started to kind of dwindle uh, when the method scene hit. I mean, people were not interested in seeing women like that the same way they were seeing men express themselves on screen, which is unfortunate. Yes. But, but in 1995, Pacino and De Niro, who were... You know, it was in the midst of the Pacino sons, really, yes. that began the of Love, Dick Tracy, Godfather 3, Frankie and Johnny, Son of a Woman, Glengarry Glenn Ross, Carlito's Way, and then Heat.
1: And, and and De Niro had done a similar run with Goodfellas and Midnight Run, and he just, like, he just... Kate he, Peter, yeah, yeah, Kate Fier, he, he done that. he did that 80s run, and they just... There's nothing like those two, like, running into this movie, and you're just like... Yeah. Perfect. But what's
2: interesting is that post 1995, uh, post 2000, really, you know, the idea of movie stars and movie acting has changed a lot. Yes. And for example, last summer I watched Heat uh, with a friend of mine who's much younger. I think she's about 26 now and she loved Heat, but she had trouble watching it in terms of differentiating Pacino and De Niro because for her they were just two old guys really and, <laughs> and it was it was a it's something that i couldn't identify with but you know for a lot of uh, younger people the the idea of a movie star nowadays is you know we're in a culture of celebrity versus movie yeah. stars say nothing and and movie actors uh uh great actors you know they'll be in a movie but they'll make about 5 million dollars or something so it's just weird how our own relationship to the medium, you know, getting back to this metatextual intertextual stuff is just in this metamorphosis. And, uh, you know, but when heat came out, it was, it was, uh, the, the perfect storm. I mean, as I said, when, when I saw it, it was the one movie I, I wanted to, see, you know, I, I love the Godfather films and I love Pacino and I loved De Niro. And then I, I always wanted them to be in the same movie together. and, it was one of the three times in my life where a new movie, you know, there's several classic movies I saw that I thought that was perfect. That's what I wanted, you know, but but where a new film was everything I wanted. I was like, I was ready for it. <laughs> yes. And when I, you know, I I wanted to t- take all my friends to it, and <laughs> I think the other two times that happened were Thin Red Line in 1998, 99, and actually just recently uh, last year and it doesn't count i guess cuz it's tv and not cinema but twin peaks the re- the return
0: yeah but
2: th- those are the three times when i was like that's this is exactly what i've been hungry for and uh, twin yeah. peaks
1: twin peaks are, uh, uh, twin peaks is something that i don't think you're alone on the the entire the entire, <laughs> the entire um film twitter sphere exploded just like oh my god where have you been David Lynch, for the love of God, we need you. Keep making this. Um, And and, uh, um, Thin Red Line's a different one, though. But I totally agree; it's one of my favorite films of all time, too. Thin Red Line. But the first time I watched it, I don't know whether I was too um, too inured to a Saving Private Ryan style of war movie. Um, Yeah. And I watched it the first time, and I hated it, like the first watch. And I went home. I went home, and I couldn't let go of it it lingered with me almost stronger than any film maybe in the last 20 years that i watched and it just stayed with me completely and then i went back thin, and I watched it the next day thin red line thin red line
0: just because okay. it just
1: the the images the the narration just everything the you know the or the restraint the moments where you, the. All the mo- all the reasons why it's not Saving Private Ryan stuck with me so profoundly that I was like, I need to go back and watch this again. I need to go back and watch this yeah. again. And since then, I've watched it many, many times, but it's there. There's, there's some of those that you come across that you don't realize how perfect they are until they don't leave you. You're like, get out yeah. of my head. I need to do other things. I've got, I'm busy. Um, let's go back to this scene for a second because I just want to make sure that we've covered off on this scene. Is, I really like, and you don't, there's some, there's some kind of, I don't know what to call it, but it's like, there's some kind of sacrifice that seems to happen in these classic films where, where, and I'm just going to sort of t- tweak the screen a little bit so you can see what I'm talking about is where big actors surrender themselves to supporting roles, maybe with no dialogue, especially in this scene, which is so, you know, could be dialogueless. You could change all this dialogue to just like an intertitle, and we would get it. it, it, it that's how it. it how great the scene formally is constructed but i just love like you got wes judy you got the amazing ted levine um jerry schwartz there in the back and these guys are all doing amazing surrendering to a pacino who's just looking around and who needs a chorus of faces to project his emotions onto i think there's something you don't I don't know whether it's framing or whether it's something that's old school or whether maybe directors that sort of came out of that 70s new Hollywood just do it better. I don't know what it is. Like they just they seem to do it better where they give an actor space to react and then bounce off of other people around them. Like I love there's a lot of business that Levine's doing in this scene. Like he's grabbing his head, he's putting his head in his hands like, "Oh shit, this is just a disaster." Wes Judy's looking at him like you know, trying to sort of got this stoic, really hard lines on his face. I'm going to press play while we're talking and it's going to be on mute. Levine's just surrendered. Jerry Swartz is there. He's just shaking his head. Like, he's like, I don't know, man. Wes Judy's the one that...
2: Levine makes his hand like that, like, well, it (laughs) could, you know, but guys, I...
1: Sure. He's like, I don't know. He's like, I don't know. And then he looks to Wes and Wes Judy does this great, like, don't. Like, he does a a really uh, gesture... Just sort of don't like this is not this is not the time we should take these guys and I think that he reads that in he reads that in um, Vincent Petino's eyes like he's just looking and he's like no no and then bang oh I he, this this interplay 38 seconds into the minute where he puts the he puts the walkie up to his mouth and he's about to talk and then he pulls it yeah. down for a split second. It's that additional thought, and then the pan, quick uh, quick cut over to Wes Judy's face that sort of gives him the support, the real stoic looking at him like, no, have the conviction to say no, and then he pulls the, the walkie back up to his mouth and starts talking again. I just love that. I, th- I don't think there's enough of... There's not enough of that importance in a reaction or formulating an idea in a vacuum. Like, it doesn't have to have... Ted Levine in the frame. Doesn't even have to have Jerry Schwartz. Doesn't have to have Wes Studi. It could all simply be Vincent. But I think it does so much as well for his character in that moment that much like De Niro just in the previous minute is kind of thinking, looking at the van, thinking, 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 and then just goes. Here we've got Vincent able to do that in a sort of, I don't know, very dramatically interesting way, bouncing off all these other characters' faces.
2: Yeah, the... Way that man uses faces there, and how they're bouncing off each other. The th- thing about I've always said about Michael Mann is that, like, you know, we're talking about Terrence Malick and Thin Red Line. Uh, he can give a character a soul by putting the camera on them. Yes. He's about registering things, and that's again, you know, I talk about Dziga Vertov when his big influence, you know, registering people. Now, granted, here he's doing something that's against the Vertov school by using big name actors yes. in a capitalist society. But,
1: um, in a cap- but I lo- I lo- If you didn't hear that in a capitalist society, <laughs> See, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, it, this is a Soviet school we're t- talking about. You know, <laughs> Vertov and Eisenstein, but but um, mistakes were made. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it didn't work out, I guess. But um, the point is, is that that. What man has always done, I thought, you know, he would just, you know, he'll always hold, he'll he'll let the image breathe. He'll let the face breathe. He lets the form, the human form in the frame kind of have its own sort of sentience in there. And that's why, and that's in his narratives too, his narrative structure. He is, you know, kind of that, that Altman-esque tapestry, you know, where you have these, you know, the center is everywhere. The circumference is nowhere. It's just, uh, you know, these different narratives coming in and different souls intermingling with each other and then drifting apart. Uh, in The Insider, Lowell Bergman has all these news stories, all these narratives, whether, whether it's about narco dollars or the, the Unabomber. Yes. All that stuff is coming into The Insider. I love The Insider. Oh, I, think it's I love, Cass- love The Insider, too. He and Manila just established this space, you know, Uh, Pacino Lowell Bergman will be on the phone with someone and he'll establish this space hundreds of miles away scrupulously in a tracking shot following a guy just going to a phone and you think okay this space is significant but no it's only going to be there for a few seconds and that's kind of the way he uses actors he'll use Rip Torn for in a way that almost feels disposable but no I mean it has to be a really great actor embodying that character that man is creating in the same way that all of man's technicians and decorate and art directors and so on make that space uh, full of as much nuance as an incredible performer. But there, would you talk about the faces? I mean, that's central to what Michael Mann is doing. Miami Vice is all about beginning with the Neptune narrative and then suddenly another narrative is up, you know, downloading. Yes, <laughs> and all the different downloads are happening at the same time. It, it's.
1: Uh, and no one and we don't care about what what happens to the you know the poor collateral damage of the Neptune story at the beginning Ami- yeah. almost and immediately and
0: <laughs> i mean
1: that's you know that's another that's the, that becomes the a narrative and then it kind of drifts away
2: it's uh which I think as his films have during his digital period uh that's become more of his thing he's become more quote unquote digital so to speak, which makes his movies probably more hard to watch for some people. But that's, you know, in Thief, you have the cafe scene, which is just this wonderful long scene where people are just laying out their, you know, dreams and histories. And you compare that to Public Enemies, where uh, Dillinger just says, this is my deal. I, you know, I like fast cars. I like movies. I like you. You know, it's a different version of let's cut all the mini moves and the bullshit and get <laughs> on with the romance. And then in Black Hat, you have the Koreatown diner scene, um, or Tang Wei and Chris Hemsworth, and it's the same. It's a replay of what happened in Thief, but they're so on edge. Yeah, it's not relaxed. The, the the world. There's as the the mantra in the movie is there's no time to grieve. There's really no time to be. There's no time to to Communicate yourself in the
1: same way during the analog era. Now we're
2: in this very jittery digital era. It's weird.
1: I love how you talked about the world scene and the James Caan scene in Thief. Because that I actually think that, that sort of formed the emotional backbone of that movie. Those two people... And that's what they got to be in that scene. They got to be two people just pouring their hearts out to one another and just very open. You can see you can track the evolution to heat though, because in that moment, rather than one long Justine, say, Vincent conversation with Venora and Pacino that takes up that entire space as that the scene does. You watch a Wayne grow in a prostitute scene. You watch, um, you watch Vincent have a conversation with Justine. You watch Vincent have a conversation with Rachel. You watch another scene with Neil and Edie. You watch Lillian and, and Donald Breeden, and you're watching boom, 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 boom. This like they're all they they almost traverse the same. Uh, the same territory, if you like, as that Tuesday World, like uh, James Khan scene, because it's so much longer. It's so much more about their lives, what they want, their dreams, their hopes, the dark realities of actually what he does, um, prison life. And this happens like snap, 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 and man kind of does it with a tapestry of characters instead of one character. So you see him starting to build up going, what elements am I going to take from what is so good about just two people sitting in front of each other being... And then, what other things can I exert pressure on? Like with Dillinger, it's like he's so uh, laissez-faire about his like what's going to happen with his life. He's like, he's like, I I only have time to give you three sentences. Um, And much like Black Hat, it's like they do care about their lives. They, at least, that's the one thing that's different. But it's it's bang 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 bang. It's still got to be. But the world itself, I think,
2: in Black Hat is bang 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 bang. (laughs) Yes, yes. As I put it, you know, the cyber world has sort of colonized the the firmament and so you have all these digital blips in the movie like it, you know the met, the writing of the film itself yes is you know and that's Low digital it
1: in it it's yeah. uh you
2: know messy and erratic it's you know it, it's very different it's not refined i mean it's not man uses a lot more tripods i think in his earlier films and now it's it's different but um yeah that gets back to interface and the medium and all that kind of stuff, but, and communicating people coming together and going apart. And in some cases, I think with Hannah and Neil, even though they're trying to figure each other out, it's an honest back and forth in the same way that Tuesday, Weld and James Con have. Yes. Uh, versus that, you know, the scene with Edie and De Niro, it's romantic as hell, but it's totally duplicitous, yeah. <laughs> which is, by, oh,
1: thank which is you. why, I call it so, Fantasyland. I've become to call it Fantasyland. In case you haven't heard so far in the podcast, that's Fantasyland. That conversation, I love it.
2: That's why I am not at all bothered by the flagrant green screen shot of Los Angeles yeah. in that scene. To me, it feels like you know a lot. I know a lot of people who love Heat, and they just don't like that scene because of how uh, "quote unquote" fakey it looks. To me, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's surreal, it's illusory, but it reflects everything that's going on there in that dynamic between them and what Neil actually dreams of accomplishing in his life. And the fact that the woman in the case is an artist, someone who creates illusions, I mean, it's, it's totally consistent with the work. <laughs> this is what critics do. Our, the postulate of criticism is to find something <laughs> that you see in the text and, this is gospel. This is truth. But I, I, I to me, it, it it does work like
1: that. Well, guys, this has been such a ripping talk that I'm gonna I'm gonna bail him up on here. Niles, you have to come back. You have to come back. There's many more minutes that we can talk about in the entirety of heat. I wanted to bring Niles on pretty quickly because I really wanted to spook off the map. Um, if you've got a Kindle. Like I do, you can buy it on there. If you want to buy it off amazon.com, you can go on there. I'll put a link up on the episode link. Um, Niles, would you come back for another one heat minute? I'll let you choose this time.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Guys, um, this has been Niles Schwartz. Thank you so much, sir. Um, If you want to read, again, off the map, um, Niles is also now at Slant Magazine. So if you go uh, slantmagazine.com, you can find him from Oz um, and you can check him out. Or if you're listening around the world, you know Slant Magazine, of course. Um, Niles, thank you so much, my man, for being a part of the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, It was exceeded my expectations and we learned some stuff. I've just realized that some of the people who come on the show and drop some knowledge like um, Niles need a book list so I will try and find those we need a reference list of some of the articles and things that he did Dan Callahan's screen acting in America Richard Coombs' Michael Mann becoming article from 96 in Film Comment we'll get those links up in the actual post so you can see them if you want to check them out as man fans as we are I've been Blake Howard, this has been episode the 74th minute of One Heat Minute, um, oneheatminute.com for everything. We're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Stitcher. Find us anywhere, have a listen. Um, Garth, Dave, uh, Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design. Paul Davies for our music, thank you. Thank you guys for listening, and thanks again, Nelson. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.